Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, worship team. It's super fun to be leading with Allie. Allie and I actually led in a church when we were high schoolers years and years ago out in, down in Portland, Oregon. So it's fun to see it all come full circle now. Uh, my name is Nathan Nelson. I'm the pastor of mission and outreach here at Bethany. It is a joy to get to share the word with you this morning. Um, we are headed down the home stretch in our series on Job. We are going to be looking at this final chapter, chapter 42, and then next week, Pastor Chris Lyons is going to round it out for us as we turn from Job to Jesus, okay? So we're going to look at this final chapter, and as I was preparing for the sermon today, I came across uh, a quote from a super well-respected theologian um, kind of talking about uh, how we are to summarize Job. And this is what he said, and it it really changed the entire trajectory of how I was going to prepare for this sermon. So listen to this quote as I read. Any summary of this huge, sprawling, complex book would gravely insult its integrity and its depth. The only thing to do is to read it again. Well, we've got time. Let's give it a whirl. Job 1.1. There was once a man in the land. No, I'm not going to do this. But the theologian has a point, And this is why I bring it to us this morning. And that is that we never close the book on Job. Insofar as, as long as there is suffering in our lives that characterizes even a part of our existence, the themes of Job are forever open to us. Right? And so what I want to suggest this morning is that as we consider closing uh, this series out, that we uh, take note, what are the invitations that God gives to Job? What are the tools, I'm going to call them, that Job gives us for the rest of the journey, for our own journeys that are sure to be characterized by suffering, yes, and joy, and everything in between, right? We know that's what's coming. So what then are the invitations and what I'm going to call the tools that Job can give us for our journeys ahead. That's what we're going to do. But for us to do this work, what I want to suggest to us this morning is that we first have to prepare our hearts for some deep work to be done. What I want to suggest is that we, in order for us to see the true invitations that await for all of us in Job, we have to go deeper deeper than what sort of immediately meets the eye in the text, deeper uh, than maybe uh, what we've heard about, the conventional answers to suffering in our world and God's relationship to it. Deeper to a place of uncertainty. What I want to suggest is that in that place, in this place of uncertainty, awaits for all of us truly profound revelation. So. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to do this deep work? Let's pray. Lord, we just pause for a moment and acknowledge in the course of our week, course of our life, God, often we fail to get interrupted by you, just enough to be reminded of our place in the world, of your place in the world, and how we're to relate with each other as a result. So God, I just pray that even in this moment now, you would interrupt us just a little bit. Bring us, God, to a place of depth that allows us to see more clearly you, your purpose for our life, 
what this is all about. We trust, Lord, that your word holds for us great revelation towards that end. And so, God, we expose our hearts to you. We ask that you would till the soil of our souls for your work to be done, trusting that life and restoration is the goal, the trajectory of all of our lives if we're just willing to do so. So meet us now, we pray in your name. Amen. So let's remind ourselves first of where we've left off in Job's journey. Uh, You recall that uh, we started with Job. He's a righteous man. He's said to be a faithful man. He sort of has all the good things that you could ever hope for or imagine in life. And then a kind of wager is made in which Satan comes along and says, okay, God, let me have my way with Job just a little bit. And God says, okay, to a point. And then all this suffering begins. Job starts to suffer all kinds of things, terrible loss, terrible pain. And then along the way in that, these quote-unquote friends come along who aren't necessarily the best friends at all, but they challenge Job. They say to Job, man, it's not going too well for you. You must have done something wrong. You must have. So it's simple. Repent. Things will get better for you. And not only for you, but for your family. Think of them. Repent. Be done with it. And Job says, of course, in response, no, I've done nothing wrong. I am morally upright. I have nothing to repent of. And so as we learned last week from Pastor Abiodio, Job goes so far as to say, and this is my paraphrase, go ahead, put me on trial. If you do, you'll see that it is not I who am guilty. And implicitly what Job is saying here, and this is so important, is he says, God, if anyone is guilty, it's you. You're the one who allowed this to happen. And then we hear God's response to Job. First, by way of a new friend, Elihu, that enters the scene, and then directly we hear from God. And what the two of them do is they paint a picture of the powerful, life-sustaining glory of Yahweh. And in so doing, they remind Job and sort of one of the great poetic texts of our human history that he is but a mortal man of flesh and blood, and God is the divine. And this is where we pick it up. Following God's concluding remarks to Job, we begin in the 42nd chapter with Job's final response to God. What is Job to say at the end of all of this? And so in Job's response and the sort of short narrative that follows, uh, it tells of Job and his family's restoration. And in that, we see uh, what I would like to illuminate as three invitations that I believe will take us deeper in our faith. Each of these invitations has a quote-unquote tool associated with it um, that I believe will equip us, all of us, as we consider our lives and, and the journey that awaits for all of us. So the first invitation is this, one, be humbled. And the tool we gain from that is trust in the creator. Second, we're invited to be reconciled. And in that, we're equipped with eyes to see the goodness of God. And thirdly, an invitation to be restored. And there we gain the hope, the trajectory of our story in Christ. So let's start with this first invitation to be humbled. In Job's final response to God, he makes an all-important yet peculiar statement that suggests, okay, God, I hear you loud and clear. 
you're God, I'm not. The quote unquote why for my suffering is far beyond me. I get it. But it's the context around this statement that I believe is so pivotal for our interpretation and its application of Job today. So let's read just a couple of verses again from Job's initial response to God. In verses five and six, it says this, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, verse six, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, this sixth verse is a very complicated one. It's one that's caused a lot of problems for us as Christians throughout the history of our tradition throughout the centuries. And I'm not going to suggest to you today that I have the right interpretation and that will fix all that was gone wrong. No. What I do want to suggest to us is this, that if we dig a little bit deeper, what we're going to unearth is something far more profound than what immediately meets the eye. You see, uh, the question on the table is, did Job repent? Is he saying, sorry, God, you're right. I had it wrong. I was wrong to question you. I did something wrong. You know, let's get on with this restoration thing. And I believe if we look at other English translations, it helps us as well as looking at the original language to begin to see that, in fact, there's something way more meaningful there for us. If we look at the common English Bible translation, it puts it this way. Therefore, I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. You see, Job does not repent for the reasons that it may appear. To rightly understand the context for this statement, we have to take into account the preceding verse, verse five. It said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I had heard of you, God, but now my eye sees you. You see, this movement from hearing to seeing implies movement towards a greater depth of understanding. So what is Job understanding? What is it that he learned? Is he admitting that he indeed sinned and thus apologizes to God so he can be restored? No, I don't think so. Despite that being how this text is often preached, especially in circles that reinforce the prosperity gospel or this notion of if you do this, then that kind of faith, these verses invoke something much deeper, much more meaningful for Job and for us. So if you recall the points being made to Job by Elihu and by Yahweh that we heard about last week and in the weeks prior, in their speeches to Job, just just prior to Job's response here, nowhere in there do Elihu or God seek to say to Job, you're guilty of sin. Nowhere in there. You won't find it. But what God is inviting Job to is an awareness, an awareness of his great power and sustaining love right in the middle of his suffering. And here's the problem. Here's where Job goes wrong. He misses it. He misses that point of the story. There's this grander thing going on, and he's so entrenched in this notion of who's guilty, who's innocent, these friends that have come, they've filled his head with this stuff, and he's like, look, if that's the way the world is, I'm innocent. If anyone's guilty, it's God. And God says, no, Job, take that way of thinking, throw it over here, throw it away. There's something else going on here. 
So you see, Job is being called to an entirely new paradigm for his life, one in which he can find peace in his humanity through relationship with God, his deity. Peace in his humanity through relationship with God, his deity. And so when Job says in verse six, I relent, or as some translations put it, I repent, he's what one scholar describes as repenting of repentance itself. Or that is to say uh, uh, that he, he's, 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 he's got it all wrong. Shame on me for having bought into this false paradigm. You see, the suffering that Job experienced is not about his innocence or God's guiltiness or responsibility for the suffering at all. And Job says profoundly in verse five, I see that now. When we read that Job finds comfort in dust, also translated in earth and ashes, this is all about him finding peace in his humanity and with God and his divinity. As we learn from Ecclesiastes 3.20, all are from dust, from earth, and all to, to dust they will return. You see, what Job is doing here is he takes himself finally, literally, out of the judgment seat, off of the throne, and he returns to the very place from which he and you and I will all return. And the place that we all came from, where is that? the earth. And it's here in his earthly state, his humanity, that he finally is comforted. Knowing his true life is found there in relationship with his God. And so Job being humbled is not about him admitting fault for his suffering at all. It's about coming to terms with who he is in relationship to God. Amen? You see, we all know this, but um, just to state the obvious here, the world is much too complex to ascribe guilt or innocence to any one person or situation or thing. We all know good things happen to quote-unquote bad people all the time, and bad things happen to quote-unquote good people all the time, right? See, the world is much too vast, much too murky, full of brokenness, full of beauty. And there is no if then that, if this, then that formula that leads you to the quote unquote good life. It doesn't exist. Stop trying to find it. What God is revealing to Job is that in him is true life the kind of life that isn't dependent upon the nature of our circumstances, rather one that is characterized by an intimate relationship with our creator amidst whatever shape our life takes. Um, I, in trapeze, yes, my wife and I, we do flying trapeze. I'm still your resident circus pastor. Um, We have a saying. The saying is, The job of the flyer is to fly. The job of the catcher is to catch. Now, this gets a little bit tricky for me. Tricky, get the pun? Cool. It's a little tricky for me because 
I both fly and catch. So I get this a little bit distorted at times. But you see, here's the deal. When you're a flyer on the trapeze bar, your job is to go sail through the air and then do a flip, do a spin, whatever your trick is, and then present to the catcher what we call catch hands, just like this. And when you present to the catch, the catcher then upside down can come, reach out, grab your wrists, and carry you into what we call the apron, and then back again and throw you back to the bar where you can return to the board and everyone claps and it's so beautiful. But the thing is, here's the problem. All too often, us flyers, especially me, because I also catch, forget what our job is and we try to catch the catcher, right? And this is what happens when you try to catch the catcher, right? It's ugly. I can tell you from personal experience, time and time and time and time again, I can't get it through my stupid skull, that it's not my job to catch the catcher. That's the catcher's job. But when it happens, oh man, it is beautiful. If you can just throw that trick, present, you return to the bar, it's gorgeous. Art. That's what happens. But If you don't, it's a train wreck. And I all too often experience train wreck. And what I want to suggest to us, you're like, why are you talking to me about trapeze? Is that this is the first uh, uh, tool in our toolkit for our journey is trust. We have to trust that indeed there is a good God who will catch us. To whom our faith can stand up against. There's no question too big. There's no situation too big. There's no murky waters that feel too complex that the God I I thought I understood doesn't quite fit into. We have to be able to trust. See, the, the funny thing about flying trapeze is that when you present to the catcher, often, especially as you do bigger tricks, that moment of presenting to the catcher is blind. You can't see the catcher coming. You just got to put your hands there. Trust that the catcher will catch you. Friends, can we trust, even in our blind moments, that God wants to catch us and lead us to a more beautiful life than one we could have on our own. This brings us uh, to our second invitation for this morning to be reconciled. So we've seen Job's response to God, his sort of revelation. And what we, uh, uh, we, what we want to do next is look back at these friends. What are these friends, right? Quote, unquote, friends. What happens with them? Well, Listen as I read verses seven through eight. It says this, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of the friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. So that's all three of them. They're all in trouble. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has, verse eight. Now, therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And listen to this. And my servant Job, shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done. Now, a couple of important things to note here. First is this. God makes it clear that Job's friends were wrong. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like a little like, oh, yeah, baby, when I read that. But second, Job became an instrument for their reconciliation to God. Job, uh, excuse me, God invites Job even after all the pestering of his friends, all the frankly like terrible, there's no book written about friendship where these three are used as an illustration in the positive. Doesn't exist, right? After all that, 
Job is invited to pray for them. And it's on the far side of his prayer for them that God ultimately would grant them mercy. And it's on the far side of his prayer for them that God grants Job himself mercy, that he himself experiences the mercy of God and the restoration of God. Watch what happens in verse nine as I read. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord told them. These are the friends. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. Verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him. They ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And so you see, God doesn't just snap his fingers and give Job everything back that he had lost. It's not how it happens. He doesn't even get the exact same things that he lost. First, where relationships had been broken, reconciliation takes place. So Job is called to forgive, to show mercy, and in so doing, he experiences the same. Friends, how timely is this example for us in our world today? How many of us look around at times and think, you know what? There's a little brokenness in our relationships. Anyone? Can I get an amen? Yeah? Um, Just the other day, I was driving home from the office. And as I do that, I kind of go by one of these streets that runs parallel to I-5. And so I'm driving home in my truck and I notice that... um, there's some smoke kind of coming out from behind what looks like a bush or something off in the distance. And so I kind of wonder about that. And as I get closer, I start to see that the smoke is kind of really taken off. It's now like black, thick, billowing smoke, and it's coming out from like bushes from behind a chain link fence. So I thought, this doesn't seem normal. Initially, I thought, okay, maybe someone's just keeping warm, something like that. But this was clearly not how things were meant to be. So I pulled over get out. I'm kind of looking to see how might I be able to get through. And I see there's kind of a, a, a place where the fence had been peeled back and you could go through. So I, I go through there. And sure enough, what I see is a tent that's been totally engulfed in flames, completely on fire. Right next to it, another tent, an encampment, and a, and a young man standing behind that second tent, kind of sheltering himself with his hands on his head, completely freaking out. And I say to him, Sir, is there anyone in the tent? Is there anybody in here? And he assures me, no, 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 no. My friend is gone. It's just me. And then, you know, I try to console him a little bit and understand, what can we do? You know, I call the fire department. I call the police. They come. They start to put out the fire. But as literally his home, his belongings are burning to the ground, I stand next to him. We're watching. There's there's propane tanks. There's exploding. There's, you know, cracking and and the fracturing and total destruction of everything this person had. And I'm standing next to him and he just kept saying over and over and over again, that's everything I had. That's everything I had. That's everything I have. It's all gone. And I thought to myself in that moment, what a tragedy. But what I'd realized shortly thereafter as the policeman comes and he starts to kind of interview the guy and get an understanding of what happened here is that I, don't, is that I, didn't, I wasn't there for the true tragedy. I missed it. The real tragedy was this. Teenage 
boys had driven up in their car, hopped out, threw Molotov cocktails at this encampment, other things to burn it down, yelling racial slurs and other hateful things before hopping in their car and driving away. The amount of hate that it takes to burn down someone's means for survival is pretty troubling, is it not? But I've thought about this situation a lot. And as I've thought about it, I think something even more troubling is that these are teenagers. They're incapable of coming up with the kind of hate that it takes to do something like this. You know where they got that? You and me, man. The things that we say. They're just regurgitating messages they've digested from all around them. It is lost on these kids that these are people. Friends, it's lost on us that these are people. People experiencing homelessness, friends, they are not problems to be solved. They are people beloved by God, full of love to give you and I. If we would just give them a chance. You see, the challenge is that it's so easy when the quote-unquote other, whether it's someone living outside or whoever it is in your life, there's a million others in my life and in yours. The problem is that when we aren't proximate to one another, it's easy to commodify someone as a problem, right? Rather than to see the other for the human being that God created them to be in God's image. It's only when we become proximate, when literally maybe we have to go through that chain link fence, cross a border, see a person, that all these prejudices can start to subside. What I want to suggest for all of us is that we're failing to see the goodness of God all around us because we're stuck in our prejudice. We're not proximate. We're not crossing the boundaries. We need to cross. We've heard it said that there's a homelessness problem in Seattle. Let me tell you today, please hear me when I say this. Please hear it. There is not a homelessness problem in Seattle. First and foremost, there is a compassion problem in Seattle. Amen? Man, we got to get this right. You see, these are people full of the goodness of God with so much love to give. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that goodness if we'll allow the calluses of our own hearts to soften. And in this place, the grounds for true restoration can begin to spring up. Life can start to come. Restoration can start to come. We're about to turn the, turn the page here to this third and final invitation to be restored. But hear me, that restoration, it doesn't happen on its own. We got to go through The first invitation, be humbled. The second one, be reconciled with those around us. We got to do the work in here before we can be restored. There is no housing initiative. There is no number of food banks and community meals that are going to fix the problem of tents outside. I don't like it. You don't like it. The people in the tents don't like it. But we got to get it right in here. Otherwise, People get in housing. We still don't know each other. We still hate each other. The scars that we've had of people burning down our homes don't go away because I got a place to put over my head now. We got to do this deeper work.
We got to go deeper. My uh, wife and I were privileged to get a home of our own um, a few years back. And in the process of owning a home, I have discovered all kinds of new things that life has to offer us. One of those things is um, this thing, have you heard of it? Gardening. Not a gardener. Not a gardener. I apologize to all the gardeners in the room. What you do is extraordinary. What I do is not gardening. I just, I own that. But what I do do is try to make my house look presentable. So when people walk by, it's like, they're not like, ooh, eyesore, right? So that's my job. Uh, Macy and I have agreed the front yard is mine. I will cultivate it. It will be okay. She will watch and not weed ever in her life. That's okay. And so, you know, I do this work and, 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 the, and, and we're, we're coming up on spring, right? And, and in my front lawn, there's, there's starting to be some buds coming about in the, in the different plants and all, and all this. And it's, I actually, like genuinely, I'm excited. Like I'm excited to see what, what's going to come out of this. Couldn't have said that a few years ago, not in a million years, but I'm excited about this. Now, one thing I'm not excited about is that in my front yard, there is a patch of grass that has become taken over by like clovers. You, 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 anyone in here, homeowner, this is bad news, right? We're told this is like, they're going to take over my yard. And so what I'm really looking forward to is digging that stuff out of there and then planting new seeds and watching them grow. And my lawn is going to become this beautiful green thing that dogs are going to walk by in the street and be like, man, I'm trying to pee on that, you know? (laughs) So this, and forgive this illustration in advance. My boss told me to keep it in here, so blame her. Um, If we do this deep work, if we dig out the clover where we need to, if we plant down seeds, right, then the promise of restoration of a green lawn can come about. So my hope and my prayer is that this community here in just a handful of months, we might be able to look and go, you know what? At a relational level, we're starting to see some green lawns. Like dogs want to pee on us. I told you sorry in advance. I told you sorry in advance. I shouldn't have said that. So this is our second tool for the journey, friends. Eyes to see the goodness of God, especially in people and in the places that seem the most devoid of it from our own limited perspective. And this brings us to our third invitation, which is, of course, to be restored. So what we've seen so far is that Job has paid attention. He's received revelation from God. He put on new lenses to see Uh, the God and and the world more clearly for what it really is. He's shown mercy to his friends. He himself has been shown mercy and been reconciled to his community. And now we turn to the third step in his restoration journey. So would you listen as I read verses 12 to 17? They're short and it goes like this. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. What do you do with 6,000 camels? Look it up. I want to know. A thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand donkeys. Verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children for generations, verse 17. And here's the crux of it all, friends. And Job died old 
and full of days. Now, there's so much to unpack about this. There are some things that we just simply cannot get to. I apologize in advance if there's something that I don't cover that you really hope I will. There's a great bit in here about gender dynamics. Come and talk to me afterwards. Would love to go deeper. But we have time for two things. First is this. uh, We know from Psalm 9010 that in ancient Hebrew tradition, 70 years was understood to be a full lifetime. So what Job is being given here is a whole new life, twice over. 70 times 2, 140, my wife's a math teacher. Boom. Now, remember that Job is a poetic book, and much of its meaning is in the mystery and metaphor of its poetry. So what we need to do is be careful in our interpretation, but what I want to illustrate for you is that, uh, for, us, uh, for us today is that Job's suffering, his, his sort of old paradigm, this guilt versus innocence world in which he was living, where he sort of constantly had to justify himself before God, before others, that that was not going to ultimately define his days. He's given new life, newfound revelation from God, and how he is to relate with God and others as a result. And friends, here's the truth. So are you, so am I. We all share this invitation. If we can accept this truth deep within us, of a life unbound by the circumstances of our world, rather bound up in the truth and promises of God's goodness amidst whatever comes our way, then we are really living. Then we are the real living hope of God in the world. Some of you um, know this part of my story. I've shared it with you before, but uh, a handful of years ago, just over three years ago, my dad passed away pretty suddenly, pretty tragically. And um, uh, after I shared about that in a sermon a while, a while ago, a couple from the congregation came forward and they said something to me that was incredibly profound. And that's what I want to share with you today. So for context, a few years ago, um, my dad went in for kind of a routine surgery. He was going to have a mass removed. He didn't want me to worry. He didn't tell me. Um, goes in, gets the surgery. Things are going well. His recovery is going well. And then uh, one night he aspirates and uh, immediately had chemical burns on his lungs. And moments later, all of his major organs shut down. My dad uh, would spend the next three weeks unconscious in the ICU, me at his bedside, And uh, ultimately, I had to make the impossible decision to let him go. Now, in the process of that, even as I talk about it now, you can see there's pain. But hear me, friends. The goodness of God was more evident to me then than ever has been in my life, even more than today. Never was the goodness of God through all of that in question. It wasn't. I felt viscerally the presence of God in a way that sustained me through an experience that I don't wish on anyone. And so this couple from the congregation hears me tell this story and they come forward and they have a smile on their face, which might seem odd given the context. But what this couple says, and I know their story, they've gone through a lot of pain and suffering of their own. And they smile at me and they said, Nathan, I heard you talk about the goodness of God and your suffering. I can relate. And then they said this, doesn't it feel like the world is just sparkling around you? 
And in that moment, I was like, yes, that is it. I couldn't put those words to it, but man, did that resonate with me. And you might be like, that sounds kind of like, but truly what I mean by that is that when I looked around me through that whole experience, and even as I was giving that sermon that day, man, it was like the world was sparkling around me with the goodness of God. I had to go to a deep place. I had to look deeper than what was on the surface. But man, it was there. It's still there for all of us to see. You got to put on the glasses. Now, <laughs> uh, I don't wear glasses. Um, so forgive me if I butcher this analogy, but my understanding is for those that do wear glasses, that periodically you have to change your prescription. Is that right? Yes? Okay. I'm also told by my mother that for those of us who don't wear glasses currently, our day is coming. We all will put on glasses. Friends, we all need to put on our glasses to see, not just here. Yes, I've heard of the goodness of God, but man, like Job, don't you want to see it? That deeper level, an awareness that indeed the world is sparkling around us as broken and messed up as it seems. Man, it's sparkling. We need eyes to see it. And for myself, at least, I can point to a time when I felt it, but this morning, even this morning, I'm like, I need a new prescription. I got to change this old prescription out because I want to see again. My prayer is that together, friends, as we close the chapter of Job, the book of Job here, that we can leave equipped with eyes to see God and the world sparkling with God's goodness around us, that that can give us a vision for the restoration of God far and beyond what our minds can conceptualize on our own. We have to experience it. And here's how we experience it. We have to be humble. We have to respond and be reconciled with those around us, with the broken places of our world. And in so doing, then we get to enjoy the fruit of restoration. But it's a journey to get there, friends. You see, with these eyes to see, God will not just give us a hope to hold on to in our mind, but an embodied hope, one that we can live out in who we are and how we are in the world. And we're going to finish with this, the final verse of the book. It says, Job 42, 17, then Job died old and full of days. Another way this is translated is Job died old and satisfied. You see, friends, Job died satisfied. Suffering? Oh yeah. But could this have been said of Job prior to the perspective the deeper awareness and experience of God's goodness and God's presence in his life that he discovered on the far side of his suffering? No, that's not how the story goes. That's not how our story is going. But satisfaction does not equal being void of suffering. Praise God, amen? Justice does not equal I am right and you are wrong. Hear this, and we'll close with this. Justice for Job is found through forgiveness and repentance and satisfaction through intimacy with his creator. So I invite the worship team up. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And before I do, I am going to take a risk on our community. We're very comfortable in our pews. What I'm going to invite us to do 
is to get up and to move a bit. You see, as I've been reflecting on this text and thinking, okay, God, how do we respond? Especially when we find ourselves in times of suffering, it's hard to, be, to even have the faith to utter the words, I know you're good in the midst of it. But what we can do is we can move our bodies. And you see, Job, where did he find his peace? Where did he find comfort? In, on the earth. Not on the throne, not on the judgment seat, but on the earth from which he came. And so what I'm going to invite us to do is to come and kneel up here. Get on the earth. Be humbled by God. Where do you need to be humbled? So you can be reconciled with others, with God. And then together, we can start to be restored. So, man, these steps over these last several, several, several months have been getting dusty. Will you come dust these steps off with me? Get on your knees. Meet God on the earth where we belong. He's on the throne. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's just our deep hope to be transformed evermore into the person of Jesus. Lord, we often forget, get caught up in the narratives of this world that lead us to believe that maybe we have a different role to play. Maybe you don't have a role in any of it. Lord, in faith, we just want to come back before you kneel, return to our place as humans, return you to your rightful place as God. And Lord, we're going to throw our best trick. Catch us, we pray. Lord, catch us as we trust in you. Lead us to a life far and beyond what we could have ever imagined on our own. Let's respond in worship. Amen.